And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, specifically Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Um, last week, we looked at the opening verses of Ephesians 3, and I, I mentioned last week that in, you know, in my opinion, that in, in, in the, the overall book of Ephesians, that Ephesians chapter 3 oftentimes feels like the, the lost or overlooked or even forgotten chapter, that there are other chapters that we, we go to for, to for scripture memory and to, to, to look at larger sections of it, but, but I, I think that, that Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3 is certainly worthy of, of our attention, our time, and our, and our effort. I mean, it is a wonderfully rich chapter, wonderfully rich with important, crucial, significant theology, but also wonderfully rich with, with practical application for our lives as we seek to, to live out the Christian faith. Now, I want to remind you, what we looked at last week briefly, looking at Ephesians 3, verse 1, and how this chapter begins, that Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then last week I drew your attention to that, that line after Gentiles, and, and what I called that incorrectly last week was a hyphen. It's not a hyphen. Hyphen connects two words. I know this now. Somebody taught me. Okay, it's a dash. All right, separating phrases. You guys have to be gracious to me. Many of you know I used to be a mathematician, okay? And so words are hard, and it just so happens that I'm supposed to use them in this calling. But with that said, that dash, that dash is there to let us know that Paul is about to interrupt himself in a sort of way, that he, he's going to go on several verses that kind of amount to a, a holy, sanctified, inspired digression. And he's going to come back to this thought. But during this time, Paul is going to elaborate and explain his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. And then after, after verse 1, during this digression, this interruption, Paul goes on to speak about what he refers to as the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. And then Paul you know, quite clearly defines what he means by this mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3, verse 6, whenever he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It was, it was radical news. It was a radical news and radical message for Paul's original audience 2,000 years ago. And as, even as we said last week, it's still very radical for us to hear today that what Paul, this means that Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Greeks, it means that every one of us, no matter where we're from, it means people from every tribe, tongue, nation, people group, continent, who are in Christ, are now incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms, without any distinction. All peoples, Jews, non-Jews, everyone in Christ are fellow heirs, members of the same body, members of the same household, the same family, partakers of the same inheritance, the same promise in Christ through the gospel. In our passage today, which really is only, only two verses, verses 7 and 8, Paul continues to tell us about his calling as an apostle. Now, as a couple of things to realize about this. On the one hand, it's important that we remember Paul was an apostle. 
I'm not an apostle. Neither are you. Even if I don't know you, you're not an apostle, okay? If you think you are, let's meet after the service and let's talk about it, okay? None of us are apostles. It's not a calling that any of us share with Paul. However, on the other hand, what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8 does have implications for my ministry calling and your ministry calling. Not just the calling that pastors, elders, deacons have, but that every Christian has, every Christian who desires to use their God-given gifts and abilities faithfully in service of Christ and his church. And I hope and I trust that's every single Christian in this room. We desire that. So with that in mind, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. Now we're going to look at these two verses under three headings. We're going to look at Paul's calling, his power, and his message. So calling, power, and message. So first, his calling. And look at the, the first half of verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So Paul says, of this gospel. I've been made a minister of this gospel. And we're, we're going to talk for a little bit about what we mean by that. What is the gospel? Because this is how Paul introduces himself in other places in his letters. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, I'm an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In Ephesians 3, he says, I've been made a minister of this gospel. And I know that word gospel is a, that's a very churchy word. And my guess is most of us, maybe every one of us in this room, we've heard the word gospel before. And I think that maybe many of us even know that that word gospel means good news. But I want to ask you a simple question. Only has four words in it. Simple question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? How would you answer that? More specifically, how, does, how is Paul using the word gospel here in Ephesians chapter 3? Now, I think what's helpful for us to keep in mind is that this is happening really in the middle of this letter. And if you've been with us as we've gone through Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, or you're familiar with those two chapters, you know that Paul has really been talking about the gospel in both of those chapters. And so as we seek to answer that question, very important question, what is the gospel? There's a sense in which there's a narrow answer and a broad answer. Both are very, very important. There's a narrow answer and there's a broad answer. And so I want us to do that, okay? I want us to think about both of these. So what is the gospel? We're thinking about this narrow answer. That narrow answer is getting at what must a person believe to be saved? What is the gospel, the good news, that someone must believe to be saved? 
the narrow answer. And, and before I give you what that answer is, let me tell you what that answer is not. And I start with what it's not because many, many people, many, many people in our city, many, many people in churches in our city today, perhaps even some people in this church today, believe a lie about the answer to that question, what is the gospel? And what I found is, is that one of the most common errors, most common lies about what people believe about the gospel, about the good news, about what must one believe, what must one do to be saved, is that we must do a lot of good things. We must do a lot of good works. We must be nice. We must be sweet. In fact, the, the lie really revolves around us believing that God is this cosmic moral accountant. And he's looking down from heaven and every time we do something good, something selfless, we, we get a gold sticker. You know, we, we get credits to our account. And every time we do something wrong or selfish, sinful, we lose a sticker. There's debits from our account. And the lie works like this. As long as my good outweighs my bad, then I'm okay. God forgives me. God will let me into heaven. He grades on a curve as long as my good is outweighs my bad. But that's not at all what the Bible says. And even if that was what the Bible said, that's not really good news. Because then we begin to think about having our good outweigh our bad. That works pretty well if we're the ones making the call, right? If we're the ones looking at ourselves and the way we live, you know, then if we're the judges, we may think, well, you know, I'm, I'm better than I am bad. And certainly if we're comparing ourselves just to other people, we may compare pretty favorably. But if we compare ourselves to a perfect and holy God and his standard, then we see that we fall woefully short. And so if, if that was the gospel, that wouldn't be good news at all. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't say work really hard to start, stop doing bad things, start doing good things. Have your good outweigh your bad and God will forgive you. Now, what the gospel is, the gospel is the good news that while we were all alienated, separated from God because of sin, because of Adam's sin and our sin, and cursed and under, rightly under God's just wrath because of that sin, the good news of the gospel is that God so loves sinners like us that he sent his son Jesus, God the Son, to take on flesh to dwell among us, to live a perfect, sinless, righteous life, the life we have failed to live, and then to die the atoning, sacrificial death on our behalf on Calvary's cross, and to rise from the grave on that first Easter morning, and to ascend back to God the Father's right hand in heaven where he's ruling and reigning over us, so that we will be fully forgiven of all our sin, washed clean, Credited with Christ's righteousness, reconciled to God the Father, given new hearts and new resurrection life in the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. That's the narrow answer to what is the gospel, what one must believe about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to be saved. Okay, but then what is the gospel in terms of the broader answer? See, the broader answer is not just what one must believe to be saved, but it includes the whole good news of Christianity. And that's a lot bigger, a lot broader. See, the broader answer includes 
all of the promises that have been secured for us in Christ's life and work. All of the promises of God that have been secured for us in what Christ has done in his life and his work. It includes not only the forgiveness of sins, it does that, but also it includes the incorporation of Jews and Gentiles into the church on equal terms without distinction. It also includes the future resurrection of the body. It also includes the ushering in of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. It also includes the new heavens and the new earth and so forth. All of these incredible promises. Now now look, look back at Ephesians 3 verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So what is this gospel of which Paul was made a minister? What's all of this? It's it's everything he's been talking about in Ephesians 1 and 2. It's the good news of what we must believe to be saved, and it includes all the promises of God that have been secured for us in Christ's work of redemption. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Now, that word, Greek word translated minister also means servant. So put another way, Paul was a man under orders, had a master. He was made a minister or a servant of God for the preaching of the gospel. Now, often the world does not want to hear this gospel message, but Paul knew that He's a minister, he's a servant, he's a man under orders. He's not free to create his own message. As one commentator put it, he's called to preach, commissioned of God to teach the word, a herald of the great king, a witness of the eternal gospel. Paul was duty-bound by God to make the gospel of God's grace accomplished by Jesus' life, death, resurrection known, known to the Gentiles, known to the world. And Paul had no other message to preach. And Paul knew the world had no greater need than to hear and to trust this gospel message. See, as Paul taught us in Ephesians 2, that before a person is saved by God's grace, they're not merely sick. They're not merely sick and in need of medicine. They're not merely you know, hurt and in need of helping. That Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. The things are that serious, the stakes are that high, and Paul knew this, and this is why he was compelled to preach the gospel message to sinners who were dead in their trespasses and sins, because it's only through the preaching and the sharing of the gospel of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection that has resurrection power to save sinners, that has resurrection power to raise sinners like us to new life in Christ. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And notice, on the one hand, Paul was made a minister. You know, he was given a calling he did not choose. That Paul was made a minister. That word made, it's a verb in the passive tense. Paul was made this minister. On the other hand, Paul considered his calling to be a gift, to be a gift of God's grace, to be an incredible privilege. It's important that we remember both of these. On one hand, Paul did not choose this calling. On the other hand, it was a gift and it was a high privilege. You see, we need to remember that 
Paul, Paul didn't, you know, he wasn't scrolling through the, the one ads and, oh, okay, here, I can apply for the job of apostle. Let me send in my resume. Do you remember what Paul was doing before Christ saved him? Before he chose him to be an apostle? In Acts 8, he was giving approval of Stephen's execution. And then we see in Acts 9 that Paul's on his way to Damascus, breathing murderous threats against all Christians, looking to execute more, to imprison more Christians. But then the the risen Lord Jesus met Paul, who at that time was called Saul, met him on the road to Damascus and saved him. And you can read about Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 9. So if we look at Acts 9, verses 3 to 6 right now, it says, Now as Saul who will later know as Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And then we read, Um, Later in Acts 9, in verses 15 and 16, Jesus speaking to one of his faithful followers, Ananias, about Paul. And he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, on the one hand, Paul was chosen. He was chosen by Christ. He was made a minister. He was given a calling he didn't choose. But on the other hand... When we look at Ephesians 3, verse 7, Paul considers this calling to be an incredible privilege, a gift of God's grace. And the same is true for us. The same is true for you, dear Christian. You know, regardless of what your calling is, whether your calling is to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or sing in the choir or host one of our city groups or serve in our children's ministry or in our student ministry, and you know, the list goes on and on here at our church. But, or if your primary calling at this season of life is for you to just minister as a parent to your covenant children. That every one of these callings and every one of these ministry areas here in the life of CEPC are intended to either directly preach or teach the gospel or to facilitate the faithful preaching and teaching of the gospel. So when it comes to ordained ministry, we have a formal process for pastors, elders, and deacons, right? A man feels an internal sense of call from God to serve an ordained ministry. He undergoes formal training, formal examination, and then his call then is confirmed by the church's external call for ministry. And in many ways, it's similar to how Paul speaks of his calling, that, that he's chosen by God, made to be a minister of the gospel, really something he didn't choose. On the other hand, he's happy to do it. It's a privilege. It's, it's a gift of God's grace. You know, and in many ways, I mean, that's, that's how I would describe you know, my calling. It's a mixture of those two things. You know, on the one hand, it's something that I didn't choose, but it's also something that I, now I consider to be a great privilege and a great gift of God's grace. And you know, I, I don't know, I, I've told this story to you guys before, but it's been a while now. But, you know, I, whenever, I, whenever I first went to seminary, um, I'd only been a Christian for about six years. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I came to know Christ freshman year in college, really the first month um, on campus. And, and I had been involved in a campus ministry, been involved in my local church. 
And, and I was sensing maybe, maybe God was calling me to ministry, but I wasn't sure. But what I knew is that I didn't really know much about my Bible. I didn't know much about church history. I didn't know much about theology, that I needed to get some training. And, and my, my beautiful young bride was willing uh, to go with me. And so we went um, to seminary. But then we found ourselves that that first year in seminary, she was pregnant with our first daughter, Lillian. And um, many of you, you know, Lillian, uh, just in a few weeks, is going to turn 16, which is really hard to believe. But, but Lily was born that first year in seminary. And at that point, my, my, my dad was not yet a Christian. And he knew I was a Christian. And, but he thought that this whole seminary thing and this possible being a pastor thing was, was just a phase I was going through. And so he was kind of resistant to it. And, but, but then whenever my daughter was born, he, he came to see us. And we were in Orlando. And you should know something about, about my dad. This is, if, if you love Orlando, Florida, this is, not, this is not really reflective of how one ought to feel about Orlando. Although you can, I do have my own feelings about Orlando. But my dad, my dad is a farmer. And he is from a tiny little town. A tiny town that has a population not much larger than the population of this room right now. So a very little town. And he comes to Orlando the first time ever. He arrives at night, and he's there to, to meet my, his newest granddaughter, my daughter. And he's there at my apartment. And now, I'm very proud of this apartment, okay? We, we searched hard for it. Had a wonderful back patio that was, you know, about as big as that piano. And, and I was very, very proud of it. Uh, very proud of it, and I'm, I'm, at, I'm back on this back patio with my dad, and he looks at me, and remember, he's not a Christian. He's very confused about the decisions I'm making. And my dad says to me, and he's, okay, this is going to sound sad, but it's okay to chuckle, because in hindsight, it is kind of funny. My dad said to me with a straight face, he said, son, where did I fail you as a father? that you would live here like this, that you would be in this city. He said, son, just come home. I'll give, I'll give you, whichever, you know, whichever part of our land that you want, you, and I'll help you build a house on it. Raise this granddaughter there. Why are you here? I said, dad, no, well, I, I didn't tell all the ways he had failed me as a father, but he's a good dad. But, uh, you know, but what I said to him was, what I said to him, you, know, you didn't take me to church, I, I did, but what I said to him was, I said, Dad, I said, it's not about that. That you know that I'm a Christian. And I'm here because I believe this is where Jesus would have me to be. It's not that I like being here, but I want to be where he wants me to be. And I believe he wants me here to receive this training for this time. And as a Christian, there will be a time when Jesus will want me to go somewhere else. I'm going to go there. Now, if I would have known at that point that I was going to move even further away to Houston and, 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 never, and never leave and never go back home, I'm not sure he could have handled it. So thankfully, I didn't know that far ahead. But, but that was very much the calling. It was one that where I, in a sense, I didn't choose, but yet I was very thankful for the gift of God's grace, this privilege. Now, in the first service today, we had, we had a group of folks join the church. We have five membership questions that we ask. The fourth one is this. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Now, that certainly includes 
giving generously of your tithes and offerings, but it also includes giving generously of yourself, using your talents, using your gifts. You may be wondering, Richard, how do I know if I'm called to serve the church in this way or that way? I'm glad you asked. Let me help you think through it. Okay, first, ask yourself, is there a need? Is there an opportunity to serve in this way? Has that need been made known? Do I desire to do it? Do I think I'm the right person to do it? Do I think I can do it well? Or am I at least teachable to, be, to learn how to do it well? Do other people who are wise and godly and mature, who know me well, do they agree with me that I could do it well or I could learn to do it well? And then ultimately, does the church agree with me that I'm the person to do this? You see, our various ministry callings should come from God. He places the opportunity before us. He places the desire to serve in our hearts. And our various ministry callings should be confirmed by the approval of the church in some ways. Sometimes it's very formal, like with ordained office, and sometimes it's much more informal. And so in this first section, we looked at Paul's calling. Paul's calling was different from my calling as a pastor Chances are my calling as a pastor is different from your calling to serve in the many many ministry areas of our church, but I hope you see there are important lessons for us to take away from Paul's calling. Second, this is a brief point, but very significant, we see Paul's power. Look again at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. You see, Paul knew the power and ability to fulfill his God-given calling as an apostle, as a minister, as a preacher of the gospel, was not found in some power or ability of his own. That Paul's calling as a minister of the gospel was given him by the working of God's power. Put another way, Paul's effectiveness in his calling was not due merely to his giftedness. I think we can all agree he was gifted in many ways, and giftedness is not bad. Giftedness is valuable. It's wonderful. I mean, we notice giftedness in others right away. But when it comes to gospel ministry, giftedness alone is never, ever enough. We notice it right away, and we're quick to put people who are gifted in positions of leadership, but giftedness alone is never, ever enough. We desperately need the working of God's power. Listen to how Pastor Richard Phillips describes um, a practice that Charles Spurgeon, the, the 19th century English preacher, would do. That Spurgeon often spoke about the necessity of a minister relying on God's power rather than his own. As he mounted the steps to his pulpit, and I think he had many steps, so he would say this over and over again, he would pray, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, reminding himself that if he preached God's word in faith, he could count on God's own power to work through the message. Knowing that sinners are converted only by God's power, he relied on and prayed for the Holy Spirit to make his ministry effective. I mean, in in similar words, that's, that's a prayer that I often pray on Sundays before I come up here to preach to you. I just close my I pray in my own mind and my own heart, God, please do not let me stand up there in front of these people in my own strength, in my own power, merely in my own preparation and my own study, that I need, I need the Holy Spirit's power. I need you to make me a pastor for these people 
at this time. Enable me to do this. See, if I didn't believe that God did that, if I did not believe that God worked in power in the hearts of his people through the Holy Spirit as God's word is faithfully preached, then I, I would quit tomorrow. Because I could not do this week after week after week. But I'm so very thankful that my calling is to faithfully, clearly, directly preach God's word to you. And I trust God by the power of his spirit to use his word to save sinners. I trust him by the power of his spirit to use his word to to call you to repentance, to call you away from sin, to call you to obedience to Christ and his word. And I hope you know the same is true for you. The same is true for you in your various ministry callings, in your home, in your family, in your workplace, here in our church, that your responsibility is to be as faithful as you can and then know that you can trust God to move in the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of his word of which you are part in so many ways. And never forget that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Remember what Paul wrote the Lord said to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, and this is, this is a verse worth memorizing, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. And praise God, this is true. Praise God, it's true for you, and praise God, it's true for me. So Paul's calling, his power, and then here lastly, his message. And we've already talked about this, his message was the gospel, but Paul's going to use some incredible phrases in verse 8. In verse 8, look, he says, To me, though I am the, le- the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So look at the first half of verse 8. He uses this phrase, the very least of all the saints. We, in that phrase, he takes the Greek word for least or smallest, a superlative word, and then he adds a comparative ending to it. So you see, what Paul is literally saying is, though I am the leaster of all the saints, whoever's the least, I'm leaster, I'm below them. As one commentator said, Paul does what is impossible linguistically, he makes up a word, he does what is impossible linguistically, but possible theologically. That Paul says, I am the leaster. I am less than the least. Now we know it's impossible to be less than the least. But that's the point that Paul's making. He's he's using hyperbole to stress that he has not earned, merited, or deserved his calling, his position, his authority. It's all a gift of God's grace. Now look at what he says in the rest of verse 8. To me, though I am the leaster, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, what a phrase. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, that Greek word translated unsearchable literally means not able to be tracked out. And we see it in the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of our Hebrew Old Testament. We see it in a number of places. Two of those are in the book of Job. In Job 5 and Job 9, that same word appears to describe the wonders of God's creation and providence which are beyond our finite understanding. The wonders of God's creation and providence that we know about, but that we cannot fully, fully grasp. And that's what Paul's talking about, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
They're, they're unsearchable, but I mean, they're, they're knowable, but the riches we have in Christ, they're more glorious and they're deeper than our finite minds can grasp. And Paul uses the same Greek word in Romans 11, verse 33, whenever he says, Oh, the depths of the riches in wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. See, this is what Paul's getting at when he writes of the unsearchable riches in Christ. And theologian John Stott says, The riches of Christ are similar. Like the earth, they are too vast to explore. Like the sea, too deep to fathom. Translators and commentators compete with one another in their attempt to find a dynamic equivalent in English. The riches of Christ, they say, are unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable. These are all the different words you might find in your various translations of the Bible. They're unfathomable, they're inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable. Perhaps infinite is the simplest, for what is certain about the wealth Christ has and gives is that we shall never come to the end of it. That's the point in Ephesians 3, verse 8. And Paul's message was to preach to the Gentiles this unsearchable riches of Christ that are ours in Christ. These enormous riches, as one commentator put it, they are, this is an enormous expanse that extends far beyond the horizon, a bottomless ocean, a never-ending mountain range. Or as the 17th century Scottish Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford put it, Christ is a well of life, but who knows how deep it is to the bottom. And oh, what a fair one. What an only one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. Put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradise into one, and it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ. So think about this. You know, what are these unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's been describing them for us for the last two chapters. I mean, think about it. Paul was talking about these riches that are ours in Christ whenever he wrote about how God the Father chose us in love before the foundation of the world, before we were created, before we'd ever done anything good or bad. He chose us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. You know, that we learn that God so loves sinners like us that he sent Jesus to take on flesh, to die on the cross, so that we would have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The God, the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, sealed us to this inheritance, these riches in Christ, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. And then chapter 1 concluded with Paul praying this prayer that we might know the hope to which God has called us. We might know the riches of our inheritance as his people and the immeasurably great power toward us in Christ who's right now ruling and reigning at God the Father's right hand. I've already mentioned this, but in Ephesians 2 he reminds us that, that before Christ saved us, we were not merely spiritually poor, we're spiritually dead. And our trespasses and sins, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But then we read, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. We are fellow heirs, members of the same body, 
partakers of the same promise, the same inheritance, the same unsearchable riches in Christ through the gospel. So look again at Hebrews, Ephesians 3, verse 8. To me, though I'm very, I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul's saying that apart from God's grace, I deserve to be at the very bottom of the pile. And yet, I've been so richly blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Pastor Ian Hamilton says, there are times when the wonder of God's grace to Paul in Christ so overwhelms him that his grammar goes out the window. One of the distinguishing hallmarks of gospel grace is that it so magnifies God's sheer kindness to us in Christ that we no longer compare ourselves to the people around us, but to the God who spared not his only son, but gave him up for us all. It is in the soil of such humility that usefulness to God in the cause of the gospel is born. And, you say, and this is what we know of Paul by reading his New Testament letters. And we compare what he writes in his earlier letters to what he writes in his later letters, that Paul is growing. He's growing in gospel humility and gospel joy because Paul is growing in his awareness of just how holy God is. And Paul's growing in his awareness of the depth of his sin. And he's, he's growing in the wonder of God's grace to him in Christ. You know, that's what spiritual maturity is, don't you know? That, it, that we, begin, we become more and more aware of just who God is. His character. His holiness. And we realize he's so much greater and more magnificent than we thought when we first became a Christian. And we are growing in our awareness of our sin. You know, the, 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 thing, the, the problems I thought were my biggest problems, you know, two decades ago as a brand new Christian, I'm like, goodness, give me those problems today because now I see my heart more clearly and, and it's a lot worse than what I thought it was back then. Right, it's growing in our awareness of who God is, growing in our awareness of the depth of our sin, and at the same time, growing in our awareness of just how unsearchable these riches in Christ are. And you see this, you see what the Apostle Paul says. I'll do this very quickly. In one of his earlier letters, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, he wrote, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul says then, okay, I'm of the apostles, leaders of the church, I'm the least of them, the least of the apostles. He wrote this around AD 55. Five to seven years later, he wrote Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 3.8 now. He's not talking about being the least of the apostles. Now he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. And then a few years later, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, he writes, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
Do you see what happens as Paul moves through his life? That he's, he's the least of the apostles, the least of the saints. He describes himself as the foremost of sinners. And that's not because Paul is struggling with low self-esteem. That he's maturing. He's growing in his awareness of just how holy God is. He's growing in his awareness of the depth of his own sin and his need for God's grace. And he's growing in his appreciation for how vast, how enormous, how unsearchable the riches we have in Christ are. Let me end with this. Friends, we're talking about calling and power and message, all about ministry. See, our double obligation in ministry, our double obligation to the world, to our families, to our children, to our siblings, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to those we minister to here in the life of our church, our double obligation is to tell them the truth about how holy God is, to tell them the truth about the depth of their sin. And what that means then is that we must tell them the truth about and deliberately so, about the unsearchable riches that are ours in Christ. When we begin to embrace this double obligation, we realize it's it's an incredible privilege to be engaged in ministry in our various ways. So let me, one last quote from John Stott. He says, here then was the double obligation Paul felt. First, to share God's truth, and secondly, to share Christ's riches. So what is needed today for a recovery of, even, of evangelistic zeal in the church is the same apostolic conviction about the gospel. Once we are sure that the gospel is both truth from God and riches for mankind, nobody will be able to silence us. And may that be true for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And how it teaches us, reproves us, corrects us, challenges us, comforts us, trains us in righteousness so that we, your people, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lord, I pray that we would, we, we would grow in our understanding of the unsearchable riches that are, are ours in Christ. Lord, please write these truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.